Hi, I'm Dr. Somi Javade. I am the chief medical officer and founder of HerMD, a women's healthcare company. And I'm here today to share a very, very important topic. Uh, I wanna remind everyone that today is not about politics. Today is about human rights, basic human rights. It's also about autonomy over our own bodies. It's about physicians being able to truly care for their patients to be able to save their lives. And it is to understand what has happened at the clinic level, at the medical level, due to the fact that Roe v. Wade has been overturned in this country. Thank you, Somi. And yes, I would say that this is a tremendously important episode um, of the Her Voice podcast because we are going to be talking about abortion as a women's healthcare issue and what's going on in the world today and how it is going to affect millions and millions of women across the country. And so as a doctor, a board certified OBGYN who specializes in women's healthcare, you know, HerMD was founded um, based on education, empowerment, and advocacy. How did this decision make you feel? I mean, we were all together over Zoom on Friday when the news came out. Um, how did that make you feel? I was devastated. I was devastated because the number one thing that I strive for every single day is for women to make healthcare choices about their own bodies, about their families, and about their future. Uh, I also recognized that the decisions weren't coming down from healthcare providers who sit in these rooms with patients, hold their hands, take care of them as they're going through these completely life-altering experiences. And I truly challenge anyone who hasn't walked that walk, been in those rooms, listened to those conversations, and looked in the eyes of these women to try and make any rulings or judgments about their lives and to make decisions about their bodies. And so let, let's make it clear, Roe v. Wade, um, the overturning did not outlaw termination. That's the medical term we use for abortion. And, but what it did is put it in the state's hands, right? And so then that at the state level, um, a lot of states then were outlawing terminations. The problem with that is that there's no uniformity and there's no true medical understanding of what the decision-making involves. And I think people just think about it as, oh, it's an unintended pregnancy from someone who had unprotected intercourse and they just want to, um, you know, undo their bad decision-making or their poor decision-making. But people haven't, stop to think about what does this mean for contraception? What does this mean to a cancer patient who is pregnant and needs radiation or chemotherapy and can't undergo that while she's pregnant? So then she delays care and potentially dies. What about ectopic pregnancies? What about young children, it just happened in Ohio, that are impregnated um, from rape or incest and what do we do with them? I, I've taken care of when I was working in inner city clinics, mentally ill women that were pregnant, unbeknownst to them. They did not even understand that they were pregnant. Um, what do we do with those women who end up pregnant and who can't take care of a baby, let alone themselves, because they don't even understand what's going on. 
There are women undergoing IVF who have embryos. Uh, we have women who are pregnant with five or six fetuses and to increase survivability of any of those babies, sometimes they have to undergo uh, selective reduction, which means you um, have a term, a partial termination um, and reduce the number of um, embryos or babies in the uterus to increase survivability of the other babies. And so there are so many things that we didn't think through um, when this decision happened because they weren't relying on medical decision-making. Wow. Okay. So we have a lot to unpack there. You mentioned a lot of different things. Um, and I definitely think we should go through all of it. And I think it's important that you started with the definition of abortion and what it is. And, you know, it is a healthcare issue, like we had mentioned before, and it's not, you know, someone trying to undo some mistake. I mean, it just has this very negative connotation and is not taking into account any of the healthcare issues that you stated. And so, you know, it hit home pretty hard for us. Number one, being women's healthcare company, number two, being, being women. And number three, you know, our two locations are in Ohio and Kentucky. Um, and so let's talk about what happened this past weekend, um, with that young girl, um, in Ohio. So in Ohio, the heartbeat bill went into effect as law. And so just as a side note, I think that's the other problem with um, letting this, um, let the states decide. Everyone has written different laws. Everyone has different definitions of when life begins and what they're gonna allow and not allow. And so I don't care politically where you stand. What this has created is a massive cluster because I'm hearing from all of my colleagues in different states, mm -hmm. they actually do not understand the law because providers are not lawyers. And so, they don't understand what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. And so what's happening is the patients are waiting. So I heard about a case where a woman was waiting for an ectopic surgery, but the hospital and the provider were waiting to make sure she became medically unstable because that was their definition so that the doctor wasn't charged with the felony fines losing medical license. And so um, it's just le led to this crazy gray zone where doctors don't even know what they were supposed to do. In the old days, it was easy before this happened. You did, you took all the medical data and you made the best de medical decision for your patient. And so in Ohio, it's the heartbeat ban. Um, so any pregnancy with a heartbeat in the uterus, they do specify that. So ectopics are actually safe. You know, you can't proceed with an abortion. And this young girl was pregnant um, as a result of rape, 10 years old, and was denied termination um, because of the rule in Ohio. And so I heard or I last read that she's going to Indiana. And so let's, let's talk about a 10-year-old and her ability to carry a pregnancy. So number one, the brain is not mature until we're in a, into our 20s. So what emotional burden are we placing on a 10-year-old girl to carry a pregnancy? Number two, a female pelvis. So I'm talking about the bones and the uterus. It's not meant to carry a pregnancy to term by any means when we're 10 years old. And so we are placing her life at risk 
she is much more likely to have a preterm baby, much more likely to need a cesarean section because her pelvis is not equipped to carry a baby. And so then when that baby's born too early in the hospital, increased risk of um, learning disabilities, all kind, all of the risks that come with a preterm baby, low birth weight, who's going to take care of that baby? Who's going to take care of that baby who's having a baby? These are all of the steps that were not thought out. And so I think this young girl is traveling to Indiana to get care and to have a medical termination. But I was embarrassed for Ohio. This girl had no decision-making in getting pregnant. It's not something that she chose. Um, And we've victimized the victim. We've victimized the victim. Just think about it. It's, it's completely crazy. And I I read the article and she, you know, she had to go to Indiana. Thankfully Mm -hmm. she had the means to get to Indiana or somehow made it happen with, you know, her family, but there's many other girls who don't have the ability to do that and travel. And the gynecologist there who took care of her, you know, she said, I'm really glad I'm able to help this young girl. Um, but for how long Indiana's next, like it's coming. And like, I think only for a few more weeks, are we going to be able to stay open and, and medically terminate potentially? So I know that that GYN was also very fearful and that's, what's going on at the state level. It's like, there's so many different rules and laws and, you know, there's many states that are kind of clustered together, right? Like we have patients from Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio, and then we have providers who practice in multiple states. Um, and so with all those rules in different states, it makes it really challenging um, for patients and providers. And then, you know, in Kentucky on Friday, um, that was a really sad day for us too, because Kentucky has the trigger law. So it went into effect immediately. And then we had to get in touch with our lawyers to protect our providers and then to also sadly find out or try to find out if what we were, you know, performing in the office and giving prescriptions would be legal or not. Within so, we had to figure that out. Right. No. So it's sad that I have to say this statement, but, you know, her MD does not provide medical or surgical terminations, but we definitely provide contraception, we provide plan B, we provide IUDs, and we do take care of women when they're making that decision of whether or not to carry on the pregnancy. We do take care of women who have ectopics, we take care of women after they've had a termination. And so we take care of women as they're leading up to those decisions and then after those decisions, and we do it without any judgment. Um, and her MD continues to be a safe place to have these discussions. And so, for example, there's a medication, uh, it's called misoprostol. It's used um, as a labor-inducing agent. It's also used in medical terminations, but it's also used to help with IUD pain, to help Mm -hmm. dilate the cervix so that the procedure is less painful. And so in Kentucky, it's now not legal to provide this to a pregnant patient, which we are not doing, but operationally, we had to think about what are we going to share on the prescription? How much information are we going to share with the pharmacist that 
we are now, you know, we're prescribing this for IUD insertions because that's what we're doing. And we also do pregnancy tests to ensure that our patients are not pregnant when we place an IUD. But it's really hard as a healthcare provider to want to share this information about your patient with the pharmacist because I feel like, and we feel like it's her business. But going forward on the prescriptions, we are going to place the reason that we are doing or why we're prescribing this medication, but I still worry about access. I still worry that the pharmacist will not fill this medication. And so that's a concern for me. And um, IUDs are also a concern, not in Kentucky or Ohio yet, but I have seen some indications that in some states they are going to go after IUDs next. Well, we've been seeing on social media that depending on the pharmacy, pharmacists are not even dispensing or giving women problems, dispensing birth control and plan B, right? And so I wouldn't be surprised if they go after that next. I think it's all a matter of, you know, when the, and this is the problem with everyone interpreting it their own way is there's no uniformity, but whether you believe that life begins at conception or implantation. Mm -hmm. And so any method that would disrupt, so you can either contraceptives work in a multitude of ways, some stop ovulation, right. Or the process of the egg being released from the ovary. That's the way oral birth control works, for example. IUDs also stop ovulation, but, you know, we showed this really nice video. They make sperm confused. They stop fallopian tube movements. The fallopian tube is the conduit between egg and sperm. It thins the uterine lining, which can then help um, prevent implantation. And so that's why IUDs would be on the chopping block because they don't solely work by stopping um, implantation. And, you know, it's interesting. I was reading an article this morning about plan B. Plan B also preliminarily works by stopping ovulation. Plan B is just oral birth control packaged in a different way. Theoretically, it can also stop implantation, but that's not the primary mechanism of plan B. So it's interesting that plan B is on the docket as well for some legislators. But what's super fascinating is that, yes, I already saw multiple TikToks this weekend about young girls being turned away at pharmacies in different states for their regular contraception. And what's even more heartbreaking to me as a mother of two teens is two teenage girls, um, is I watched their phones blow up this weekend from their girlfriends saying, hey, does your mom... And does her office, do they prescribe birth control? Like these young girls are already thinking about this, even if they're not sexually active, because they're worried that if something happens to them, if they're raped, if they're assaulted, they do not want to end up pregnant. Just think about that. It's no, it's incredibly scary. And the same conversations were happening in my house. I mean, I've slightly older daughter, she's 20 and her friend is 20 as well. And, you know, birth control isn't always 100% effective, right? Like it's very effective, but you know, they're in their mindset worried, like it's not hundred percent. What about that small chance? I, I get pregnant. Um, and then I could, 
I would have to have the baby and despite like whatever circumstances might be around it. And it's just really scary. Um, and even if you're, you know, choosing to get pregnant and you have like ectopic pregnancies are big topic of conversation. Um, you know, we've heard a lot about ectopic, but Somi, I'd love for you to walk through what exactly an ectopic pregnancy is. Um, and why termination is what's medically necessary for an ectopic pregnancy. And it's so funny that you use those words termination, because I don't even consider an ectopic pregnancy a termination, because to me, a termination is terminating a viable pregnancy. So, okay. What's an ectopic pregnancy? An ectopic pregnancy is a pregnancy that implants anywhere but the uterus. And so sometimes it's in the fallopian tube. So remember the fallopian tube is that conduit that brings egg and sperm together. Most people have fertilization when egg and sperm meet in the fallopian tube. And a couple of days later, um, the embryo then implants in the uterus. So an ectopic pregnancy is outside of the uterus. So it can be in the cervix, which is the mouth of the womb. It can most commonly in the fallopian tube. It can be on the ovary. It can be in the abdomen. So has an ectopic pregnancy ever gone to term? Yes. So there have been cases of abdominal pregnancies, uh, miracle, right? Where a baby did survive to term. But has there ever been an instance where medically we have been able to transplant a ectopic pregnancy into the uterus? Never. So it is not considered a viable pregnancy. And so where we're getting into this, some states have been savvy and they've actually written ectopic pregnancy as an exclusion, meaning that women can get access for care because it's a huge risk of maternal death. So when an ectopic pregnancy can rupture, someone can hemorrhage and bleed out in minutes. And so some states have said, no matter what ectopics can be taken care of, Other states are still standing to the fact, well, if it is a medical emergency, well, when is it a medical emergency? Are we waiting for it to burst? And then a woman is hemodynamically unstable, meaning going into shock. Mm -hmm. And then her surgery becomes a lot more risky. And so what, what are we doing for a pregnancy we know won't survive? We're putting a living, breathing human being at risk. And these are decisions now every day that are happening I've heard of doctors and anesthesiologists waiting to hear from the legal teams in that state because no one knows trying to figure it out. And meanwhile, this woman is waiting. And I will tell you one of my scariest stories in training. I will never, ever forget this story. I was young. I was first year resident and I had met a young woman in the emergency room who had come in and she was diagnosed with an ectopic pregnancy. And she was sitting there eating a Wendy's sandwich and looked okay, was complaining about some pain. And I said, Hey, listen, you can't eat anymore because we're going to do surgery. And we put her surgery off for eight hours because she was stable and she was eating. Um, and we were just going to watch her and admit her because, you know, when someone's eaten, it's not safe to put them to sleep. And since she was stable, I think not even 35 minutes later, um, I was called back to the emergency room. The patient was unconscious and bleeding out. She went from eating a Wendy's sandwich. She actually argued with me about it. It was funny. She was like, but I'm hungry, doctor. I'm like, no, gotta stop eating. 
And I remember the attending surgeon, you know, we, we, by the time we got in, we saved her life. We got leaders and leaders of blood out of her belly. She got transfusions. We were able to, you know, um, help her. And the pregnancy of course had, had burst. Um, and she, he looked at me and he goes, never, ever forget this moment. Never, ever forget how life-threatening a nectopic pregnancy is. And remember this for the next patient that you diagnose and as far as your medical decision-making goes. And so I don't think that non-medical people can understand that a patient can go from walking, talking, laughing Mm -hmm. to unconscious and dying in minutes. Um, And there's no way to predict at what point that burst is going to happen. And so I think this is a real conundrum Mm -hmm. that we have going on right now. And I applaud the states that it, that have, it's hard to applaud any states right now, actually, but I do applaud the states that have actually taken some medical advice and have uh, understand what ectopics are, Mm -hmm. but a lot of them haven't, or the language is so vague it still leaves doctors paralyzed, paralyzed, paralyzed. And you brought up a good point where you were in training, right? First year. And, um, you were told never forget this moment. And what happens to those students who are in med school in States that no longer perform these procedures, how far behind are those medical students going to be? Are they going to know how to take care of women. If let's say they go to a different state then, right. That allows care for ectopic pregnancies. How far behind are they going to be? And are they going to be able to care for patients without that exposure to caring for women who have an ectopic pregnancy? I'm terrified that we're going to have doctors that do not know how to take care of emergent situations for women. Uh, I was at an excellent training program. And I had one of the most catastrophic, uh, things happen to me when I was only six weeks out of training. Um, I had a woman who came in with a placental situation that actually grew through her uterus outside. And I knew how to do the cesarean hysterectomy and to do all the things and to get a trauma team involved because I had a training at a major clinical institution that taught us how to do everything. Mm-hmm. And so I just think about these doctors that are going to go maybe to a rural setting, or they're the only doctor in the entire hospital. And a woman comes in with a ruptured ectopic pregnancy, and they don't know how to manage it because they never saw it because in the state they trained in, it wasn't legal. And so I think we're really, really going to struggle. We already struggle with ma- maternal mortality in this country. It's really, really high for us as an industrialized country. And so that's, what's going to happen. We're going to see more maternal deaths because we're going to have inadequately trained surgeons. Um, And then we're also going to have OBGYNs who are not really familiar with how to place IUDs or how to prescribe certain medications or even understand the side effects of certain medications. And so um, it really, really scares me for the future, because I've been in those situations when you have to make decisions in seconds and they won't be equipped to make decisions in seconds because Mm -hmm. they will, they will have not seen everything. Right. And then, and and that's including, I guess, non-viable fetuses and how you take care of women who, you know, 
have a non-viable fetus. And I would love for you to just define, I think there's a lot of definitions that we need to have here, but you know, there are stories of women who are told they have a non-viable fetus and they have to carry it to term. Um, so, um, you know, and I think the other thing that legislatures don't understand is in a lot of these hospitals, there's ethics committees too, aside from the physicians who help the family and also the hospitals determine what non-viability means. But basically these are usually pregnancies and I can give you examples of the ones that I have actually personally seen and -hmm. consult patients about. I mean, there are sometimes babies with, um, no brain development. Mm -hmm. They usually don't live for more than a few hours. Mm -hmm. So you're putting a woman through an entire pregnancy birth delivery and all of that trauma for a baby that, um, is not going to make it. Now I know people will argue and say, well, there's been case reports of these babies living for, you know, two years, but then talk to me about quality of life. If you are, you know, if you're not able to see, hear, taste, feel, talk, walk, um, then is that quality of life and who's to make that decision for that baby? I mean, there's so much involved there. The parents are robbed of that decision of whether or not they want that for their child, right? Um, Non-viable fetuses, I've I've, uh, met women whose baby's hearts are outside of their chest cavity. I mean, there are babies that are missing organs that are required um, to live. Mm -hmm. And so there are all types of issues that can make a baby not viable after it's born. And so, I mean, to force these women to carry on with these pregnancies, I think that's, that's a really tough one. And I think that decision should lie with these parents And plus, I think the other thing we need to talk about is the cost, the medical cost, the emotional cost, the toll it's taking on everybody um, to force these these babies to be born that are going to die. Yes. I mean, I read a story over the weekend. Um, This was a mom of two. This was her third pregnancy. Um, And she found out, I think the baby was 20, 22 weeks that the baby was either going to die inside of her or die basically upon delivery. Um, and she said she had to go the next, what you're talking about, Somi, the next four to five months carrying, carrying this baby, knowing it was going to die. And that burden that she had to have emotionally and her partner and her other children to see her stomach grow, to see, you know, to anticipate this birth and knowing that this child was going to die. And how do you force this woman to do that? I think the most painful memory I have of this is talking to a mother who was telling me her other friends that were pregnant were planning on, you know, childcare and Mm -hmm. baby showers and getting their kids on lists for preschool. And she was pregnant and planning a funeral. Like, right. If that doesn't take your, like, I'm getting choked up because I'm remembering that conversation. And she's like, what pregnant woman should be planning a funeral? Now I want to flip that coin though, and say, there are some women 
who want to have that baby. They want to meet that child. They want to hold that baby. They want to bury that baby. They need that for closure. So right. I'm not saying terminate. I'm saying right. choice, choice, yes. choice, right? Exactly. Yes. Because some people will listen to this and say, well, well, some women want that and need that. Well, good. Yes. They should have that choice. Um, but what about the ones that don't? And mm-hmm. then talk about the mental health effects for those women, mm-hmm. the depression, the postpartum depression. And then a lot of them want that time back so they can start to plant family planning and they want to be able to conceive again. And mm-hmm. when they're forced to carry a pregnancy to term, they are delaying their dreams, wishes, and family planning potentially for another year. Right. Right. Um, and so these are, I think a lot of the things that we haven't talked about. Um, yeah. and I've been in rooms with these patients and it's, it's devastating. It is a position that no woman wants to be in or ever imagines themselves, right? When they're planning pregnancy and thinking about being a mom, it's not something that you think about. No, it's not. And I'm, I'm glad you hit on choice because that, that's what it's about. It's about choice. And so the last thing I want to touch upon, which, which is deals with a lot of choice is IVF. And so that is something that is really being talked about a lot because again, every state's going to be different, right? What is life? Is it conception? Is it heartbeat? Is it implantation? And so IVF in vitro fertilization. So let's walk through that and um, what that means um, for healthcare and for like egg freezing, for example. So let's take that very like basically. So basically you have um, man and a woman or even egg and sperm. (laughs) You extract the um, egg from the woman's ovary and um, place it in a Petri dish. This, You guys, this is like biology 101, okay? I know that it's way more complex than this, but just explaining it really simply, put in a Petri That's dish, yeah. right? And then um, after a couple days, um, you choose how many you want, how many embryos that you want right. to implant back into the uterus. Right. Um, and... Um, and then the rest that are there, because it's very expensive to go through this process, mm-hmm. then are frozen or saved. And so at the embryo stage, right, where egg and sperm have already met and they've, they've grown to a certain number of cells. And so most women will not choose to put in more than three, right? Mm-hmm. Triplet pregnancy is already um, complicated and risky. Right. Um, and then, you know, you don't want to you want future pregnancies, you know, you right. don't know if it's going to take, right. Cause you may have to do it over and over again. So right. when most women choose to, um, freeze those embryos. And I think, um, yeah, like the questions, and I think we'll talk more, you know, when, when we have a special guest, who's going to talk to us about some of the legalities of all of this, but, you know, you talk about then what's going to happen to those embryos after those parents are, are gone, mm-hmm. you know, like, does someone else have to take over the care? and take over, you know, if they're not all used, I've heard stories about people, um, shipping their embryos to States where, um, you know, a termination is not, um, illegal. 
And so mm -hmm. it's going to be a real interesting um, conversation that's going to be happening with women who are electing to undergo IVF, because now they're going to have to think about all of the embryos and, and what they're going to do with them if they're not going to be able to use them all and storage, exactly. et cetera, and cost, right? This is a cost right. to those, to those mm -hmm. patients and those parents. And so I think it's going to be very interesting um, what we see happens with the infertility space. You know? Right. And then we were talking the other day too, and I think it would be really good to mention this because you did also mention most do not have more than three implanted, right? Or um, during IVF. What about, I mean, there are those pregnancies where there are four or five, whatever mm -hmm. put in. And then what does that do if all of them implant and mm -hmm. are deemed like successful or viable in the beginning? What are the chances of survival and to carry that pregnancy all the way to term with that many babies? So most of the times when you hear about Octomom and, yeah. um, you know, people who have five, six, seven, um, embryos, it's usually not IVF. Um, mm -hmm. it's usually oh, okay. from ovulation, um, stimulating drugs, right? Wow. The okay. uh -huh. Because most IVF physicians will not implant that many okay. embryos. Right. Okay. Um, and then sometimes it will happen from IVF if you get embryos that split, right? Twins. Mm -hmm. And so you can end up with more than you implanted. Okay. And so then the question becomes, okay, a woman now has five embryos that are mm -hmm. look like they're taking, they've implanted. And so mm -hmm. she's given a choice most times and says, okay, this is the survivability, you know, if you choose to carry all five this is the date that you will probably go into labor, or this is about when you can carry to. And so the way I describe this to people is the uterus has a set size that it can grow to. Okay. And then once it's set, once it hits that set size, then it's like, oh, I've been stretched to the max. Then comes the labor cascade. And so for every baby that you add roughly, you subtract four weeks. So what do I mean by that? So 40 weeks is a singleton. You have twins, it's 36 weeks they're born by, right? You have triplets, it's 32 weeks. So you see where I'm going with this. Right, earlier right? and earlier. Earlier and earlier. And less time for the fetus yeah. to develop. Right. right. And then more problems with those babies being preterm. Um, and then also not to mention risks of the mother, right? When you're carrying right. that many babies, you're at increased risk for preeclampsia, for example, which can be a life-threatening condition. So there are all kinds of things that can happen from carrying that many babies. And so those women then will be robbed of the ability to maybe have a much higher chance of survivability for two or three of those babies, mm -hmm. um, you know, than all five. And people who argue will say, well, who has the right to choose, you know, which embryo? And I, I agree, the whole situation is absolutely heartbreaking. Um, but then do you lose all five because you didn't want to lose two? I mean, it's just, it, it, these yeah. are not easy answers. No. Um, and so, but, but that again, it's a choice, right? Choice. Does the mom want to carry all five and take that risk and, and understanding when her doctor says, these are the risks, this is what will happen. Or does she want to just have, you know, two? 
or three, whatever it is, based on the data that she gets recommendations from her doctor. But like the point which we had made before was like that, that choice is just gone then. Right. It's gone. And, um, yeah. And I think the biggest concern that I have is that there needs to be a lot more as a physician, as a provider, it's always medical decision-making. You take all the data that you have at hand and you make the best medical decision that you can. And I think when we made these decisions, Mm -hmm. we did not have enough medical input and we did not think about all of these subpopulations of patients that would be negatively impacted. Exactly. Um, Yeah. mm -hmm. We talk about that. And so let's talk through like the populations are negatively impacted, the inability for women to get abortions in many, many states. Right. And we've been seeing a lot in the news on TikTok. Um, And, you know, Whoopi Goldberg wrote something as well, which I want to talk about, but this is when then it becomes unsafe, right? Because there's no options for women in many places. And so what Whoopi Goldberg said was, um, and she wrote an essay about it and she, she found out she was pregnant at 14. She didn't get a period. She didn't feel safe to talk to anybody. So, you know, she got recommendations from friends, from people sitting in hot baths, drank weird concoctions that her friends had told her about um, with Clorox mixed in it and alcohol and baking soda. Um, And she got violently ill. And then because she was so afraid, because she had nowhere to turn to, she took care of it herself. She went to the park and used a hanger, which is completely heart. It's like, it's heartbreaking. Um, she was very brave to come out and, and tell this story, but when there's no access um, and there's no alternative birth control measures, I don't think that's going to make abortion go away, right? It's going to make safe abortions go away. It's going to make, it's going to make access to safe terminations go away. And yeah. so, you know, most of us know the movie Dirty Ant Dancing very, very well. Mm-hmm. And it's that scene Yes. That kills me because that's going to become more commonplace. Right. And um, what we're going to start to see then is women dying from sepsis or infection from doing these unsafe procedures. Mm-hmm. We're going to see doctors who are going to be paralyzed when a patient comes in and maybe she's halfway successful um, in inducing her own termination, but maybe there's still a heartbeat or maybe there's something else going on. They won't be able to help her because they're worried about felony charges, losing your medical license. And so, um, yeah, we're going to see all kinds of patients who don't have the means, um, maybe are, you know, getting abused by their stepfathers and they can't tell anyone they're pregnant. And so they can't travel out of state. They don't have access to this type of healthcare. We're going to see. Um, women turning to desperate measures. And Mm -hmm. so we're going to see a lot of complications from unsafe um, terminations. And it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking um, for these young women. And what kills me about this even more is that a lot of these women, because of potential injury 
sepsis, mm -hmm. emergency, may never, ever be able to have a child when that time comes up in their life. Just think about that. And right. so that then their choice is gone, completely mm -hmm. gone. It's gone in that moment and it's gone for her lifetime. And um, so I do agree with that, that we are not going to see the number of terminations go down. We're just going to see more unsafe back alley, you know, um, crazy um, things that are going on because people are, are desperate. Mm -hmm. That's what's going to happen. And, you know, we've had patients who reached out to us already fearful that they, you know, can they still get their IUD? Can they still get, you know, birth control? ablation. And so I think there's just a lot of fear. So how are we going to continue to serve our patients? Um, and, you know, we want to make sure that our patients come to us with any and all questions that they have. Um, but what are the best ways that, you know, providers can serve their patients? Transparency, mm -hmm. advocacy, education, Right. having these conversations. Um, we're staying in touch, obviously, with our legal team right. um, about what our providers can and cannot do. Because listen, I know I'm not going to serve anybody if our providers end up in jail. Right. Because most of the laws, unfortunately, are, are, well, not unfortunately, well, most of the laws, unfortunately, are going after the physicians or the providers. And so I don't want to lose talented providers and physicians. So we are obviously minding the law in each state. Um, and that's a big undertaking because we are going to be in multiple states. Um, but we're not going to stop the conversations. We're not going to, that's not illegal to teach someone, to take care of someone, to, you know, help them plan their options, to plan family planning, contraception, you know, and really help women understand what is available to them in their state. And I think this is really going to push the forefront what can we do to empower you so that you don't end up with an unintended pregnancy? Let's talk about contraception now um, while you have choice. I think we're gearing a lot more conversations towards long-term contraception. So thinking about things like IUD um, mm -hmm. and then for women who don't want babies anymore at all, you know, do they want to tie their tubes? Um, does their partner want to get a vasectomy? Right. I mean, there's so many things that we can do to continually advocate for women mm -hmm. um, and to take care of them. Yes. And also through partnerships and our referral networks, right? Because this is something that, you know, touches upon so many things. We talked about emotional well-being, mental health, the, through all the family planning and figuring out what is the best option, long-term, short-term. And so we do have a number of partnerships that we're exploring, partnerships that we have with mental health therapists, sex and relationship counseling. Um, and I think it's going to be in some instances or many, a joint effort to figure out what is the best family planning. Um, but I think the education is really important because our patients are scared and they're not sure about their choices because everything is so different everywhere. And so we will continue to do everything that is legal, which does include IUDs and birth control and um, taking care of ectopic pregnancies. And I think speaking of, about eliminating the noise, really eliminating the myth 
uh, allowing patients to understand, um, pointing out dangerous decisions, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, just clarifying like misconceptions, like we had a patient who was concerned that her ablation, which is a procedure done to prevent heavy bleeding. It's an alternative to a hysterectomy. She was concerned that, you know, it wasn't going to be legal or that her surgery was going to be canceled. And I assured her that, you know, we always do pregnancy tests on every single patient before they have surgery. Um, and we're not doing it to prevent a pregnancy or to terminate a pregnancy. We're doing it to, um, help her with heavy bleeding. And so, but it's sad to me that women, um, are that scared and they're that confused and they think that even that access is going to be taken away. And so I think for us setting the record straight for Mm -hmm. patients, um, giving them their voice back hell, giving them their bodies back. Like how crazy does that sound? Um, you know, and arming them with every choice that they have, um, I think is our, um, responsibility Mm -hmm. as providers. Yes. And so, I mean, this did, we, you know, thank you so me so much for breaking all this down because there is so much confusion and we do have women and patients coming to us every day. Is this okay? Is that okay? And so, you know, next week, I believe um, we are going to be sitting down with a special guest and talking through um, Roe v. Wade in much more detail and the implications um, across states and legally, and just talking through how this happened and, and what's to come. So stay tuned for that. I think that's going to be a great episode as well. This episode of Her Voice has been a production of HerMD. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at HerMDHealth. If you're a provider interested in working with us, please reach out to info at HerMDHealth.com. We'll see you next time.